It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome back to the Jason in the House podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this week we're going to talk a little bit about what's in the news. We're going to highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone a friend, Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, the RNC. You've seen her out there. She's been there for five years, done amazing things and a great success story. I think inspirational in what she's been able to accomplish. You know, sometimes they show up on the scene, you think, oh, wow, she's great. Or, oh, you get frustrated with her or whatever. But how did she get there? You know, and it didn't just happen. It happened for a reason because she worked hard and worked smart. And we'll have a little bit of a conversation with her about that. And uh, hopefully it'll be a good one. And I think you'll enjoy it. But let's talk a little bit about a couple things in the news that I don't know, get under my skin a little bit. And and we only have a few minutes to do this part of it. But, you know, in the last uh, short little while, the U.S. national debt surpassed $30 trillion. Now, I get to, just to give you some perspective, when I first ran for office back in 2008, I was complaining because the national debt was going to be something like $8 trillion. I was running radio ads about how $8 trillion is so big. And to just get your mind around it, if you spent a million dollars, if you spent a million dollars, one million dollars a day every day, it would take you almost three thousand years to get to one trillion. That's how big that number is. So you think that we have thirty trillion? You know, one of the biggest budget items now that's approaching on our federal government is the interest on that national debt. The interest rate is down near zero, and yet we're approaching $1 billion a day in interest payment. So we can talk about roads, bridges, infrastructure, schools, the military. You just keep going down the list of things where maybe you would like to see us spend some money. But when you spend a billion dollars a day on interest on a national debt that continues to rise at record levels... It is absolutely stunning, and there will come a day of reckoning. And I worry that there is no plan, no appetite to actually get to the point where this debt becomes under control. Personally, I think the solution to that is to have an amendment, a balanced budget amendment. Throw it out to the states. Congress passed this out. Give it to the states. Let the states decide if we as a nation are actually going to balance our books, we would be so much better, stronger if we balanced our books. And the inflation would not be nearly what it is today if the government would rein in its own spending. Right now, the federal government is spending about one out of every $4. So think about it. All the money that's spent in our nation right now, the GDP, the gross national product, is, think about it. One out of every $4 is spent by the federal government. That's obscene. And we can't keep doing it. Anyway, $30 trillion in debt. Congratulations, America. All right. The next thing I want to highlight is members hiring their relatives to do work. Nobody is the poster child of this more than Maxine Waters, the congresswoman out of Southern California. It was uh, noted that uh, since 2003, Karen Waters, who I believe is is Maxine Waters' daughter, has received over $1 million in payment from her mother and her company, Progressive Connections, for campaign-related services. I have a real hard time with members of Congress, candidates, paying their own immediate family to do things on the campaign. I just think that's a conflict of interest where that money keeps going right back into your own wallet. I understand that these jobs would have to be done anyway. And so, hey, why don't we just, you know, we might as well pay my wife or pay my daughter. I don't know. I, you decide whether or not you think that is a problem. But back in 2004, the Los Angeles Times evidently revealed that the Waters campaign had shelled out over $1 million to other family members there in the Waters family. And now they're saying that Karen Waters 
has taken over a million dollars himself. So I don't know how many millions and millions of dollars it is, but there's one example. And it's between that, the trading of stock, revisiting the Stock Act, which is a great prohibition that was put in place, but it's not being enforced. And it obviously needs to be tweaked because too many members are using insider information potentially and trading stocks while they're in these powerful positions and then paying their own staff. These things just bother me to no end. So that's not even in the category of the stupid. That's just stuff that's happening in the news right now. So let's bring on the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, I'm looking here now at uh, Byron York is one of the great guys out there. I'm just telling you, as a human being, as a writer, as an author, as a reporter, he does some great work, and he's a wonderful guy. And he exposed something. He wrote about something that I just think is so stupid. So evidently, President Joe Biden picked Sarah Bloom Raskin. This is for a top job at the Federal Reserve. And in the confirmation process, this is a Senate-confirmed position, it was revealed she had $1.5 million in stock that her husband, the Democratic representative Jamie Raskin, oops, oops, he failed to disclose the sale of $1.5 million in stock. And this has been years now. It violates the conflict of interest laws. He was supposed to disclose this. Oops, I forgot to disclose. I, you know, I'm sure the $1.5 million in stock transactions just accidentally slipped by them. This comes from Business Insider, and I've got to tell you, that is so wrong. How many times have we heard Congressman Jamie Raskin stand up? He helped in on the Trump impeachment and other things. Give us a morals lecture about how imperative it is that we do this and we do that. And and then he his own financial disclosure is totally wrong. There should be consequence for that. And there needs to be a clarification of that. And I, I don't buy his excuse. You know, he did lose his son. And everybody was really, really sad about that. And evidently this happened near that time. But you still have to do your job. You still have to do this disclosure. And everybody's going to understand if you were a few weeks behind. But to suggest that you're months or even years behind in disclosing this, that's just stupid. And then the last one for bringing on the stupid, Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, Stacey Abrams. Have you seen the picture? Yep. She's running for governor, but, you know, she visited an elementary school. All the young little kids are wearing masks. Stacey Abrams sitting at the front of the class, big cheesy smile, no mask. You know, it's the duplicity, it's the hypocrisy that just drives people nuts. If you're going to insist on a mask mandate, then you're going to have to wear a mask too. But here she is, just all smiles. Hey kids, smile for the camera. But she's not wearing a mask. And all the little kids are. They got that so absolutely wrong. I'm sorry, Stacey Abrams. Add this to the list of you're doing something stupid. Now I really want to bring on somebody I have a great admiration for. Uh, somebody who has worked hard, worked smart, always has a smile on her face, and just does, I think, an amazing job as the chairwoman for the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel. She has taken on this role. It's a tough role, tougher than anybody can imagine. So let's dial up Ronna McDaniel. Hello? Ronna, hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. I do appreciate it. Hey, Jason. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. Thanks for calling me. Well, I just had the chance to see you for a moment. You were in Utah and, uh, you know, I, I live in Utah. So it was very, it's good to see you actually in person, but uh, even better to have a chance to actually chat through about some of the amazing accomplishments that you've, you've had along the way. Well, thanks. I'm so excited. It was really great to see you in Utah. And of course, I went to school in Utah. My daughter is actually at school out in Utah right now. And it was fun to see you and, and make that connection because if she needs somebody to reach out to, I know you're somebody who could help 
when mom's not around. Oh yeah, we know how to beat some people up if you need, if that's what you need. <laughs> but if she just needs some good old fashioned homemade cookies, yeah, between. Well, my wife can help take care of that. We would love to do that. So anything we can do, let us know. Because you've got a big job. Rana, you, you didn't go for like the simple, easy job in life. This is not a cushy way to like make a living and have an impact. You got one of the most difficult, crazy jobs that I can think of as, as the chairwoman for the National Republican Committee. I, like the Republican National Committee. I... That's a crazy thing to bite off. And why did you do this? You know, I I never planned it. I I wish when I talk to other women getting into politics, I'm always like, be intentional and and know that you can do things. I did not do that. I was a stay home mom and got involved as a precinct delegate and and at my state committee and on my district committee. And then I was Nash committee woman and then I was state party chair. And then we won Michigan and the president. Then President Trump called and said, will you be the head of the national party? And I said, no way. And my husband actually turned to me and said, we can do this. We can do anything for two years at the time. The term was two years. We are now five years in. So obviously I've taken a liking to it. And luckily the members have had the confidence to keep reelecting me in this in this role. Well, I think that's, you know, the, the fact that you started at the humble beginnings of being, a, you know, in charge of a precinct, I think probably does make a world of difference because I think a lot of people would like your job. Um, at least they think they would like your job. They don't understand how hard and difficult it is. Um, but they just think they can either buy their way into it or just, you know, glad hand their way into it. But that's not how it works. So tell us about that early time when you you showed up at your precinct, like, Explain to people how grassroots that really is. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in politics. So like in the back of station wagons, going to campaign offices with my mom or handing out flyers at the library while other kids are playing soccer. But for when, when, when my husband and I moved back to Michigan, I was a young mom and I decided to run for something called precinct delegate, which you actually have to get on the ballot and run. And I was elected. It's the most grassroots role you can have in Michigan. There's thousands of precinct delegates. And then I started showing up to my county district meetings. I didn't know anyone. And just through building relationships and a passion for our community and our state got involved. I do think it has helped me tremendously as chair of the RNC because I understand the grassroots. The RNC is a grassroots committee. And I've watched the DNC kind of parachute in people who've never run a state party or a county, and they really don't understand the organization of the Democrat Party. And I think that ramp up time for them to have to learn that has hurt them, where I've had the benefit of growing up through the ranks, which made me better. Of course, fundraising is a huge part of it, too. I'd say it's about 80% of my time is fundraising. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel right after this. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. All right, so there's two parts I want to break down here because, look, my success in politics, having jumped in and, you know, I was going to be the... For John Huntsman, who was running for governor, I was his communications person. Then he named me chief of staff, and I got to kind of learn how this all works on on his dime and at his at his peril. Although he did, uh, he was <laughs> successful, and he did become the 16th governor of Utah. But I yes, had to go figure this out. I had to go figure this out, and what I didn't even know exactly what a precinct was, and um, had to try to figure out how to organize this. What were you telling your neighbors and and friends? Why should they elect you? Like, what were you saying that you were going to do? And why were you successful where maybe some others weren't? So I think a lot of it was my passion for my school. And um, I was very involved in the PTA locally in Michigan. And at the time in our state, we had a terrible governor named Jennifer Granholm. You might know her now as the Secretary of Energy. She was horrible. And we had a huge budget crisis in our state to the extent where we had teachers being laid off because we couldn't pass a budget in our state. And some of them were the best teachers in our school, 
being laid off and not knowing if they could come back for the school year simply because the state couldn't get it together and pass a budget. So when you start having your conversations with your friends and other moms in the school about policies in Lansing directly affecting your family, like, do you know that why this teacher is not back at school? Because our state government hasn't passed a budget yet. It starts to bring people into the issues and having that passion really helped me connect with my neighbors and grow in this role. But it also propelled me to want to be involved because most people, you know, don't realize the policies that are being made in your state capital affect you directly in your home. And I think the pandemic has really brought that home to so many moms, especially as our kids in my state weren't in school for a year and a half. My son's still having to wear a mask at school. I mean, we really are starting to understand the impact of government on our lives. So you used a couple words there that I think are just key for people who want to get more involved. You know, the number one question I probably get when they're exasperated by the, the, the national policy or even a local policy and they're, they're fed up and they're disgusted and they will, they always want to, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And use the word passion because, and I've told this story more than a couple times, but I remember when I first ran for office, I met a guy who said he voted for me. And I said, why did you vote for me? He said, I just loved your energy. I just, I just loved that you wanted to get after it. And I felt like you'd do a good job because you had the time and energy that maybe some others didn't. And that passion I think is contagious. Totally. People can feel it when you're authentic. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from a place that you really genuinely care about an issue on either side of the aisle, right, Jason? And so, especially when it resonates in your own community. And for me, it was being part of my kid's school was a big part of why I got involved because I just thought it was crazy that our state couldn't pass a budget. But then it was more and more things. I mean, as we, and this was around 2008 time heading into the presidential election of Obama, but Remember, our country suffered a huge recession, but Michigan was dealing with a one-state recession. So it was really personal watching friends of mine, lifelong Michiganders lose their homes, um, being foreclosed on, having to leave our state because there was no job for them here anymore. Sometimes their families had to be separated. So we were watching a lot of devastating effects of bad governance in our state. And it was personal. And I think that's what really gets people involved when you see it firsthand and you feel that authenticity from somebody running for the right reasons. Yeah, the combination of the energy, the enthusiasm, and the policy too. Because I think one of the things that you do exceptionally well, and one of the reasons you've been so successful is you're able to take a complex issue and break down the principle. I always you know, told kind of our young staff on campaigns and whatnot, and even in the congressional office, they said, look, principle over policy. If you get the principle right, then the policy will follow in behind it. So let's explain to people and understand what the principle is. And I don't know, you just do this naturally. You just kind of break it down in a complex issue. And I don't know where you got that talent. Did you like practice that when you're like seven years old and I mean, where no, did that it's mainly because I need it broken down that way for me. I mean, I remember coming to D.C. and I had a staffer talking to me about the filibuster. And I was like, people don't know what that means. They don't understand cloture and filibuster. Right, right. And, you know, something Kellyanne Conway taught me is finish the sentence. A lot of times in politics, we talk in shorthand and deficit and, and you know, um, just use words that average Americans aren't thinking about every day. And so when you say to them, Listen, you have to have uh, over 60 votes to pass something in the Senate, and the Democrats are trying to lower that threshold, which will really make it so the minority party has no voice. And that's not what our founders intended. People get that rather than just the word filibuster. And those are the types of things we need to do. But mainly I'm good at it because it has to be done for me. I'm not a Washington insider. I feel like I'm a pretty average regular citizen. I live in Michigan. I Nobody knows who the RNC chair is in my community. I live pretty, you know, political free. I don't talk about politics every day when I go to the grocery store, the dry cleaners, and it helps you be more in touch with average people. Now, I mean, I'm just glad to see, you know, I, my whole time that I ran in Congress, I had a female campaign manager. 
We mm-hmm. need more women in politics. What are the impediments and what are the things we need to do to get even more women involved and engaged in running for office, running for precinct chairs, re- running for for things that are on the ballots? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And of course, we want to elect candidates based on the merit of the candidate, not sure. because they're male or, or female, but we do need more women involved in politics because our voice matters. So when I was Michigan chair, we really actively tried to recruit women candidates and, you know, we're not monolithic, but some of the issues that came up, one was the vitriol that a lot of people are turned off by politics because of the vitriol you face. Jason, you and I certainly see that all the time. The balance issue, how do I balance all the things I have in my life, being a mom, my job, all the other things I have to do, and then running for office. I will say the third is, and this is something I dealt with a lot when I became Michigan chair, is the networking. You know, I came from a different background. I wasn't in the boardroom. I wasn't on the golf course or at the country club. I was a stay-at-home mom making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So when I first went out to raise money as Michigan chair, literally I had people slam the door in my face, call me a kindergartner, tell me I had no business, you know, basically being in the room with the big boys. And it was a huge struggle for me. It actually was much harder for me in that role than it has been as RNC chair raising money. And you just had to work hard to prove yourself and have a plan. But um, I think for women, funding is a key issue. And women don't just have to run more, they have to give more. You know, a lot of the top donors in our party are men. Women like to give to philanthropic causes or other things, but we need to support women financially as well. No, it's it's a great point because I've heard that locally, you know, in Utah about all these great women candidates. But unfortunately, and I don't think it's it's not certainly just one state, but there is sort of this. Hey, wait a sec. You've got to take care of the kids. You got all these stereotypes that I just think are so 1940s or 50s that aren't true today. So what do you tell those those women that are thinking about running, what they're going to run into? Because I think if they anticipate it and they see it coming, it won't be so foreign and so abrupt in their life. So what do you tell the potential person who does want to run? A lot of it's telling my story, too. And I mean, right now, Jason, we have more Republican women serving in Congress than in the history of our party. And that just happened. I mean, the, the, the huge wins that we had in 2020 were driven by women. And so Elise Stefanik created a PAC to help raise money for women. I know I talked to a lot of women candidates being only the second woman chair in the history of the party, only the second mm-hmm. Um it helps to recruit people and have that conversation. So sometimes we'll have lunches or, or little events in DC where we just all get together and talk about what we're going through. And I think just having that ability to know you can talk to somebody and get through through it if there's an issue helps tremendously. I felt like one of the key things for me, at least in the campaign, and I, and I came to learn this the hard way, the people that wanted to volunteer on the campaign that had all the time in the world, they usually turned out to be like not the most helpful, but it was always the people who were super busy. Like I have no time in my life to do this because once we convinced them that, Hey, this would be a good expenditure of time and effort. Then they figured it out and they knew how to budget time and they knew how to make the most of their time. And there were so many women who were either stay-at-home moms or working moms or, you know, you name it, all up and down, newly retired people. There were so many people that wanted to give their time and effort if only they were asked. It's so true. And and a lot of people don't think they're qualified to run for office. They think there's a certain pedigree. You've got to be a lawyer. You've got to be this. You've got to have yeah. this background. And really... Our country is better served by having people from every background. That was what the founders intended. We want farmers. We want businessmen. We want moms. We want everybody to come and be this melting pot of ideas and different backgrounds so that we're representing our country. And I think there was an interesting, I think it was Wall Street Journal or something that said men will apply for a job if they're 60% sure they're qualified women often don't apply for a job unless they know they're a hundred percent qualified. So you got to get over that hurdle and get past yourself and know that you can get it done. Even if you're unsure 
of whether you're totally well-versed on every issue or can do this 100%, you'll get there. Yeah, I think it's actually the beauty of the system, you know, our republic here in the United States is that we do have people with different backgrounds. We do, You don't have to have 100%, you know, right on the money. Oh, I'm totally qualified to do all this. And I'm not talking about you know, always running for the Senate or the United States Congress. You can be anything from your homeowners association to your school board to, I mean, it can be a host of other things, but you did touch on, you've mentioned a couple times fundraising. Now I can tell you, having done this fundraising sucks. I hate doing it. It is awful, but you blew through this. You, you've raised an amazing amount of money you know, and being the chair helps when you get a call from the chairwoman, but you learned to do this well before you became the actual chairman. Yeah, I did. I mean, I actually like fundraising, which is great for this job. What is There's wrong with I you? I mean, I'm going to get off the phone with you and do, you know, three to four hours of fundraising calls, but it is, it's never ending. You have to do it. Um, I love people. I love hearing their stories. It was really intimidating coming in as RNC chair. Nobody knew who I was and flying to New York City or California and Florida and getting in front of these business leaders and having to make the case as to why I'm I'm the right investment. And they don't just give because you have an R next to your name. These are investors. They're savvy. And I'm asking for a big amount. So we've raised $1.3 billion since I've been chair. It's the most in the history of the party. And it's just a lot, a lot of work and building relationships. But most importantly, speaking to your investors in a way that they understand why they're giving. So the RNC does three specific things right now that investors are very interested in. One, we're doing voter registration, which is the nuts and bolts of every election. We've got to have more registered Republicans and Democrats to win. It's simple math. Two, we're involved in lots of legal actions like the non-citizens voting in New York City. We just sued on that. And then third is the community centers we're building across the country to reach out to minority communities and really expand our footprint as a party and reach out to, to individuals who've never really inter been introduced to the Republican Party and have habitually been Democrat. And we have 21 of those open right now. We'll be opening more through the year. There's a lot of buy-in in what we're doing that it will help us win in November, but also continue to grow the party. So if let's pretend you're thinking about running, doesn't matter your gender or whatever, but you're, you're thinking about running and you're, it's a smaller office. It's the first time you've run how, that, that formula of explaining exactly one, two, three, why you need the money and what you're going to do with it. But how do you, is there a secret to how you close people? How do you actually <laughs> get them to write the check? You do not get what you do not ask for. It is amazing to me how many candidates I've been in a room with that don't ask for the check, that say, oh, I hope you'll support us. And they think that's enough. You need to have a definitive ask. Do your research. Know what they're capable of giving. Know what they've given in the past. It's all publicly available on FEC reports and say, I'd like this money. I need a $10,000 check. And can you get it to me today or this week? And it's uncomfortable, but they expect it. And so you just do it. You don't get what you don't ask for. But I'll say one other thing I always say to candidates before they run, run an oppo package on yourself and make sure that everything that you find out about yourself, you're comfortable with being in the public eye because it is vitriolic and you really should know what your opponent's going to come out against you with because you that's a family decision and you really have to know this is what's going to be said about me, whether it's true or not, it's, it's going to be spun but you've got to be comfortable with what's coming your way before you jump into that arena. Yeah, there are a lot of people who like, oh, I didn't think they would understand that. Uh, yeah, the, your competitors will figure that out in a hurry, especially if you can do a you know 10-minute Google search and find it. It's probably going to come out. And the other thing that I was, I was given advice in about Jim Hansen, who's since passed away, he was a 22-year congressman from Northern Utah, and he was the head of the Ethics Committee. He was chair of the Ethics Committee there in Congress for a long time. And he had retired, and, and I was newly elected, and I went and saw him, and I, I said, I don't know what I don't know, so tell me what I need to know. And uh, one of the things he told me, he said, I would worry less about the truth of your background because you've obviously been vetted at this point if there was something 
really salacious or you know scary out there probably would have come out by now but now that you're there um all the things that they're going to say about you that aren't true are really hard to defend yourself against so keep a steady chin out there don't don't flinch just tell it like it is be honest be forthright just whatever it is just tell the truth but you're going to have to fight against all the things that they're going to make up about you that's so true. And I, and it's, and it's hard, it's hard not to respond. And I have this happen as, as RNC chair, you know, my dad or my brother will call me or my husband and they'll say, why are you responding to this? And I'm like, because it's not true and I'm not going to give it oxygen. And if I responded to every single thing, I wouldn't be able to get the job done that I'm here to do. And it is hard. It's almost harder on family members to see some of the dishonesty and the media really isn't doing their job vetting stories anymore it yeah. becomes kind of a viral disinformation chain. Once one outlet prints something that's not true, the rest of them go with it. They don't do their due diligence, but you can't get caught up in that. And as long as, like you said, you're doing what you came to do, you're telling the truth, you know what your mission is, and you stay focused on that, you'll be successful. All right. So let's go back a little bit about little Rana. Like you said, you weren't out there playing soccer or doing whatever, you know, but you were passing out campaign leaflets. So explain what life was like in Michigan, little girl. I mean, you were doing some things that maybe the rest of your your friends and your peers were, were not doing. Totally. And my name, my name and my family is Little Rana. I don't know if you know that because no. my mom's <laughs> name is Rana also. Okay. So... I like even my cousins to this day, you know, I'm, I'm in my, I'm above 30. Let me put it that way. We'll be like, Hey, little Rana. So in Michigan, that's what I'm known as. Um, but my mom worked on campaigns since when I was a little girl, uh, piling us in the station wagon, going out. Um, she would do fundraising. My grandpa was governor of Michigan. So it was just part of our family's DNA to talk about politics and be involved and I did that as a very, very young girl all the way through high school. Um, my mom ran for Senate. My dad ran for attorney general. Um, they both lost. Many people know my uncle Mitt, who ran for um, you know president, but he was also governor of Massachusetts and now senator of Utah. So it was just part of everyday life in our family, the importance of getting involved politically. And that came from my grandpa, George Romney, and my mom mainly. So there's an importance, there's a tradition really kind of in your family along the way, but not everybody can do it. So where did you learn to like speak? And I mean, <laughs> it's, I say that with a smile on my face because it's a real talent and it does come with experience. The more you do it, the better you get. I mean, were they putting you up on a little pedestal there and say, hey, Kate, little Rana, give it your best. <laughs> I mean, how did, where did that come from? Some well, people would just what, get uh, shy. Funny. Yeah, I learned to speak really young. I remember my mom's campaign. When my mom ran for Senate in 1994, um, I came home from college and worked on her campaign. And her campaign started putting me out. And they put me at one event where it was very, very hostile. And they were screaming at me. And they were mad at my mom about something. So I learned at a young age. I was probably like 19 or 20 when that happened. And then uh, I'll give you one other fun story. Because my name was Ronna Romney and my mom's name was Ronna Romney, on the 4th of July, they would double us up on parades everywhere. So they put her in a parade and me in a parade next to a woman who looked like her. So it looked like she was in the parade too. <laughs> so it was very, very convenient having the exact same name as my mom. It got less convenient as I got older. I love being Ronna McDaniel now, but um, it was fun back then that we could uh, double up and they get, we'd have two Ronna Romneys canvassing the state speaking on behalf of her Senate race. You know, it's funny. Our, I refused to be the guy that was in political office that was riding in the fancy car in the parade. I insisted on walking every single parade. And I think people just, they understood the difference. I, I just wasn't yeah. going to be the person that was just waving from some, you know, nice car. So we went to this big parade. It was the, the, the Provo Freedom Festival. And there's literally like over 100,000 people on this parade route. Well, my son-in-law and our daughter rode in the car that said Jason Chaffetz on it, but my wife and I were walking right behind it, and the number of people that looked and said, oh, hey, congressman, and then they're looking a little closer at the my son-in-law, doesn't exactly look like me. <laughs> like they were a little confused, and then, you know, 
20 seconds behind them was, was were Julie and the I real. walking behind them. Was, it was pretty funny. But that, you could pull that off with Rana and little Rana. That actually makes some, some, <laughs> some sense. It was pretty funny. Yeah, we did a lot of that. And I was her driver. But my mom's a great public speaker. My grandfather, George Romney, was an exceptional public speaker. So I grew up really listening to them. And my grandmother was also the first woman to ever get the nomination for Senate in Michigan. Her name was Lenore Romney, and she was a terrific public speaker as well. So I think part of it was just listening to them and being around those events. I'm not saying I'm a great public speaker, but I certainly had a lot of them in my life. That's one of the things that does help if you are considering running as a candidate. And the other thing that I just can't emphasize enough is not everybody's going to be the candidate. There's still so much that can be done and involved. I would not have won my races if not for a whole lot of good volunteers who just helped. They did the grunt work. They came out Saturday mornings. They made phone calls. They put up the door knockers. I mean, and it's ultimately races that get won are the ones that are done precinct by precinct, neighborhood by neighborhood. Totally. And that's actually where I'm more comfortable. I like knocking doors. I like doing the phone banks. My kids, I taught them how to do the phone banks. I always tell people, take your kids door knocking. It's character building for them. But people are nicer to you when you have little children with you (laughs) or pets. But I love that stuff. I I always struggle on election day not being out there knocking doors now that I'm RNC chair because that is just my natural habitat. Um, And I've never really been a candidate. I've been RNC chair. I love helping the strategy and the organization to elect great candidates. And uh, but you're those volunteers and those people that give their time and believe in you and love this country so much who are behind the scenes. They are the reason we win. And they're the reason that we're going to be victorious in November because the passion they have for our country and their willingness to volunteer their time is so exceptional. And I love, love, love our grassroots volunteers. I actually have come up with an award as I go to these community centers called the the Chairman's Champion Award, and I'm giving it to the top volunteers across the country. And it's really inspiring for me to see these amazing people. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back soon. Stay with us. How do you, do you see any difference? You know, the, the world has really changed. I remember as a as a young kid, my parents would bring me to, you know, the voting booth and, you know, they have that little curtain that kind of goes side to side and they'd punch the tabs or whatever and, and they would vote. You'd stand in line in order to do so. And it was the day that you voted. But now so much of it is mail-in ballots. And I, I mean, how do you build a tradition where the younger generation understands, recognizes and values the idea that voting is is such a privilege it's a duty it's an honor it's it's something that's really important how do you how do you deal with that with the change in the way voting's happening that's a great question i think uh, you know i still make my kids go with me to the voting booth i mean i i like to vote in person personally um i do think um we've gone gotten away from that i actually would love for everybody to vote on election day i think that'd be great uh But, you know, I took my daughter, my daughter turned 18 last year and we went and voted for just a local ballot initiative. And we went in and did that together for her first time voting. And and it was really special. Um, Of course, she voted for who I told her to vote for, (laughs) which I liked that, too. Um, But I think taking them and creating that habit. But then also, if you're doing absentee, bringing them in as you're filling out the ballot, going on the websites, learning about the candidates, showing that you care, explain why you're voting for them. My son and I had a nice long conversation on the way to church yesterday about what it means um, to have non-citizens vote, like in New York. And we talked about that. And he's like, mom, why do we have to talk politics on the way to church? I'm like, because I have you in my car and you're going to learn something. But um, (laughs) it's great. Yeah. I really do believe everybody should vote on the same day with the same information. Whether we extend it for two or three days, I'm fine with that. Maybe, you know, Tuesday is not the most convenient day, but I really wish that we would vote with all the same information. It's amazing how the campaign changes in the last 30 days of the campaign. First of all, the media focuses, more articles come out, more revelations happen. But oftentimes voting is started and then they'll have a debate. And I'm like, 
wait a sec, how can you have the vote without having the debate first? It just seems backwards to me. It's crazy. Well, you know, in 2020, which is part of our, we're having a little bit of a scuffle with the Commission on Presidential Debates, but they had the first debate after 26 states had started absentee voting and all 50 states had started their military voting. I mean, that's wrong. And I totally agree with you. Listen, you have a finish line to a race for a reason. So the competitors know what they need to do to get to that finish. And we keep changing the finish line and it's hurting the competitors, the people who are running the race and also the voters because we're not getting the full picture. And it's not about anything other than, like you said, having every voter have the same amount of information, all the information with a finite finish line, um, which I think our candidates deserve. I don't care if it's two, three days, we all have work off. I think we should all be voting in person on those election days. Yeah, amen to that. I wholeheartedly agree. But uh, anyway, we can get into a whole rabbit hole of discussion about states and how that works and and whatnot. But as we kind of wrap up here, I've got some rapid questions just to get to know you a little bit better. But again, one last word to those who are on the fence. Should I volunteer? Should I not volunteer? What if I call somebody and they get mad at me? Like, what do you, those that have just, I mean, it's natural, right? Nobody wants to be told no. Nobody wants people to yell at them. Nobody wants to, but they want to help. They want to be involved. And so, you know, you can donate money, but you can also donate your time. So what do you tell the people that are maybe just a little bit hesitant and trying to decide whether or not to get involved? Well, one, go to GOP.com because we we can get you involved and we'll reach out to you. But I say go find a candidate you believe in or a cause you believe in and dedicate some time to that, maybe two, three hours a week and see how it goes. But that's how you find your footing and see if this is something for you. The one thing I would say, Jason, is you can't make a change if you're sitting on the sidelines. And the only way you can make a difference if you're passionate about our country or any issue is if you engage. So if you get involved with the campaign and they're not receptive and they're not engaging with you, go find another campaign. Don't don't be discouraged by that or then go run yourself. But everyone at this time in our nation's history needs to get engaged because we really are at a pivot point of what is the United States of America going to be. And as we're seeing the high inflation and the empty grocery store shelves and our parents being kept out of decisions in our kids' classroom and on issue after issue, I can't think of a time that is more important to get involved. And you don't want to wake up after election day and say, how did this happen? Well, if you didn't do anything to change it, that's how bad things happen. So get involved. Well, you're a great voice for the party. I just, I, I just, the straightforwardness and the, the clarity in which you share that message and that encouragement, I, I can tell why you're the chair, chairwoman. And <laughs> Thank you. So, all right, but we want to learn a little bit more about you. So I don't care how many fundraising calls you've made along the way, you're not properly prepared for these questions. So, all right, let's, all right, I'm, I'm buckling up right now. Okay. Buckle up. Okay. All right. <laughs> Favorite menu item at Taco Bell? Um, what is it? The double decker Supreme. Oh, yeah. you you go for it. That's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. At least you didn't just say oh, a taco. That's that's very, good. Okay. very rarely do I go to Taco Bell, but I have a teenage son and a double decker Supreme without tomatoes is really good. <laughs> All right. First concert you attended. Um. OK, Um. it was Michael Jackson Thriller concert, but it was the Jackson five all together okay yeah you're the only other person that's come up with that my first concert was michael jackson and it was uh but it was like i think the jackson five this is back in the in the late 80s and this is at denver's mile high stadium and i'm pretty sure it was him my seats were so far away that i'm not 100 percent sure that it was him but it sounded like him and looked like him. They didn't have the big jumbotrons like they have now, but yeah, Michael Jackson. Was I don't playing. remember very well. My aunt took me. I was probably eleven. It was the it was like nineteen eighty four or something, and I um, it was right when like the the Thriller album came out. Yeah, it was yeah. just, I felt like the coolest kid at school. You know how you get your concert T shirt and then you wear it the next day. It was, See, it was pretty I, amazing. I think for our daughter, the answer is Taylor Swift. And this was a daddy-daughter date. I took her to the Taylor Swift concert, and she had made a handmade sign 
that yes. she was convinced that Taylor was going to read. And finally, you know, three quarters of the way through the concert, I, I told her, I said, Kate, I think she saw the sign. And she was so happy. And then she finally <laughs> put it down, which is what I was. Uh, but Taylor sure. Swift puts on a great concert. And uh, see, I took my daughter to see Taylor Swift, too. I also took my daughter to see One Direction. Where it was so loud that we had to go to first aid and get earplugs because of the screaming. Yeah, no, that's a good advice for young. Yeah, the the earplugs now that I'm older and when I was younger, I wish. Yeah. Anyway, what was your high school mascot? We were the Lasser Knights, like a knight in shining armor. Yeah. My high school doesn't exist anymore, but yes, it was a great school. Who was your first celebrity crush? Oh, this is so easy. Not only celebrity crush, but celebrity stalker. I stalked him. Um, (laughs) Kevin Costner. I loved Kevin Costner after um, Field of Dreams and Dances with Wolves. And my college roommates and I actually went to California. My roommate was from California. And we figured out where he lived. And we drove by his house many, many times. And one day he was outside and we knocked on his gate and he opened his gate for us and took pictures with us. And was seriously, what a nice guy. He was so nice. I was at Brigham Young University and he asked where we went to school and he's like, that's such a great school. And his dog, he was playing basketball with his kids, which is like, I can't believe we did this. We were so terrible, but he opened up his gate and his daughter took pictures of us with him. I still oh have it. That, what a super nice guy. Wow, <laughs> that that that's going above and beyond to to actually open up the gate, but you know, yes. young 20-year-old girls, he probably wasn't that big of a threat. So <laughs> Wow, you it was you are... on my 21st birthday. I'll never forget. It. it was um it was on my 21st birthday. And, and so you just awesome. coincidentally happened to be a fan of the series Yellowstone, I'm guessing, is just one of your shows yes, that you're watching. Yes, my husband on. loves that show. I like it for different reasons. I like Kevin Costner. <sighs> well, I, I'm impressed. That is definitive. Um, so, yes. yes. Do you have a pet growing up? So, I'm allergic to dogs. Deathly allergic. Like, I have to have a note really? on the plane. I can't be near dogs. It's so sad. I love dogs. My son one day was like, Mom, if you die, can we get a dog? And I'm like, yeah, you could. And he's like, I'd rather have you. I'm like, thanks. I'm glad you made that choice. (laughs) Glad you're Um, thinking that through. Yeah. But we had a dog and that's when the dog died, we realized that was what was making me so sick as a little girl. So we had snakes, mice, birds, lizards. None of them were my favorite. I still would rather have the dog even though it made me sick. I love dogs. It's the, it's the saddest thing that no, I can't have. I'm them. sorry. I didn't mean to go from the high of Kevin. That's Costner okay. To Thanks the for making me tear up, Jason. Yes. I'm so sorry. Thanks. All right. Life's most embarrassing moment. Oh, I'm never going to share that with you. <laughs> uh, there's so many. Did that's why we want to know. That's, that's, that's the one, know. that's the one story. That we one I hear. don't really, um, I will say, um, my poor, my, my poor RNC staff, we went to Guam like two years ago, you know, Guam's a territory. People don't yeah, realize the yeah, RNC is the, yeah. the 50 states, but also seven territories, which we love our territories. And Guam is just so amazing. And the people are so nice, the, the Chamura people and just a wonderful place. But I did get in my hotel room, go on the balcony, enjoying the view, and then realized I locked myself on the balcony. So that was oh. kind of embarrassing to have to get the hotel management to break into my room. Luckily, I had my phone. Otherwise, I would have been out there forever. You would have been there for a while. Yes, no no yeah. doubt about it. All right, last question. Best advice you ever got? That's, um, well, I, I will say this. The best advice I ever got was my, one of my first jobs in D.C., and it wasn't it wasn't intended to be nice, but this man said to me, um, just remember you're always replaceable in my job. And I was like, oh, that's not very nice. But it is, you know, when you get into a job, it's important to know that you've got to do a good job, that somebody wants your job. Um, I don't think that advice is true as a mom or as a wife, but um, it's always humbling to think, you know, if I'm not RNC chair, somebody else can do it. So do your best job while you're there. Well, yeah. I mean, give it your all. Give it an effort. People are going to make mistakes, but I guess it's the, when you said that, I thought, yeah, you know, it's the people that are lazy and don't take it seriously. Like I, we actually had to dismiss somebody in our office who showed up as an intern and decided that 
work time was nap time, and that wasn't <laughs> that was that wasn't going to work for us. Um, and you at know, that you stage get, in my career, it was important because it made me hustle harder and work harder and know that the job wasn't just a given. I had to keep earning it every day. Well, you've certainly done that and more. I think you're a great example to a lot of people that you've never met or never seen before. You're a great voice for the party on issues that really, really matter. And so I wish you nothing but the, the greatest success. And I thank you for stepping up and being involved and being engaged. And we need more good quality people to to decide that, you know what, even though there's a little bit of a price to pay, it's worth it. And you can make a difference. And this country is run at the local level. You don't have to be at the, the national big time level to, to have the influence and the impact. And I think that's why you rose to become the chair is because you did have that impact at the local level. It ha- those things happen first. It does. And um, just thank you, Jason. You've always been so nice to me from the minute I started as chair. I just think you're one of the most amazing people. Uh, and I hope everybody knows he's a great guy off podcast and on podcast um but uh you're you're such a great voice for our party but you can get involved it's important to get involved ignore all the bad things because the value and the the blessings of getting involved outweigh any of the negatives and um it's been a long five years in this role but you do feel the the joy of knowing you're making a difference Well, thank you again for joining us on the Jason in the House uh, podcast. Uh, The chairwoman of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel, really do appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, I can't thank Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, for joining us. She's just wonderful. You can see she's just got a smile on her step. And I I just it's contagious. And she's raised one point three billion dollars. That's a lot of money to raise with campaign limits out there. That's impressive. But I also think she does a great job on policy. And you know what? She does a good job of balancing out her life. She's got a wonderful family there. So can't thank her enough. Thank you so much for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. Need you to rate this thing. Click those stars if you could. Subscribe to it. And you can also wander over to foxnewspodcast.com if you'd like to hear other similar programs or podcasts. But uh, we appreciate you rating it and reviewing it. And we'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.